let's ask God to help us with his word. Uh, Our Father, we thank you for giving us our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. Uh, We thank you that he is good and strong and kind. And we thank you that we can always turn to you for good things. And so, gracious Father, we pray today for the good of having your word do its work in our lives. We pray in your mercy that it would turn us to Jesus so that we trust him for eternal life and that through its teaching, rebuke, correction and training, we would be equipped to live as his disciples. Uh, We give you thanks for your word, and we pray now that you would help us to receive it with faith and that I would teach it truthfully and clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Good, thanks. Well, over the last uh, two chapters of Matthew, uh, we've heard Jesus speak to his uh, followers, his disciples, about those who are blessed in the kingdom he rules, about the righteousness they must pursue, the piety they should practice, and their attitude to money as they prioritise seeking God's kingdom and righteousness. But disciples are in it together. Jesus is making a people. How are the followers of Jesus to relate to each other in their pursuit of this righteousness? As a community that's serious about righteousness, about living God's way, how are they to stop the pursuit of this righteousness from becoming competitive and coercive, degenerating into comparison and criticism like the Pharisees? And you may have noticed as you've reflected on what you've heard that Jesus' teaching is very challenging. He insists, for example, on loving our enemies, forgiving, on being pure of heart and more. Where can his followers find help to live this way? And that's a pretty urgent question because the starting point of being Jesus' follower is recognising that you are poor, poor in spirit, needy, not rich and resourceful. And at the beginning, Matthew 5.17, as Jesus introduced his teaching on what is looked for in the life, the behaviour of his followers, Jesus has spoken of fulfilling the law and the prophets. But in this sermon, he's not covered every aspect of life that the law and the prophets address, not covered every situation. What should guide his followers in living out the righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees when we meet new situations, one Jesus, ones Jesus has not specifically addressed. And there are, let's face it, lots of them. Driving, using social media, voting. So three questions to answer before Jesus concludes the sermon by challenging in verses 13 to 27 his hearers to embrace this righteousness by embracing his teaching. So... Three questions. How are followers of Jesus to relate to each other in their pursuit of righteousness? Secondly, where can his followers find help to live this life of righteousness? And thirdly, what should guide us in living out the righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees when we meet new situations? Judge not, says our Lord, that you be not judged. 
For with the judgment you pronounce, you'll be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, verse 1 is a verse that many outside the church seem to know and reference when they're encouraging acceptance of all kinds of behaviours. Judge not, they say, using it to suggest that the only standards of behaviour we can have are purely personal and private, and that however others feel convicted to behave, well, that just has to be accepted. And this is also a verse that's been used occasionally by some Christians to suggest that Christians can't be involved in the administration of the law, particularly as judges. Now, both those are misunderstandings. Jesus is not commenting on the organisation of society or the administration by the state of justice. He is talking about the behaviour of his disciples, how they relate to each other. And Romans 13 tells us that the authorities have been instituted by God for the purpose of administering justice, avenging wrong. So Christians, according to their opportunities and abilities, can participate in this God-given task. So this verse doesn't mean you can't be involved in administering the law. And it also doesn't mean you can't be discerning, can't make distinctions between right and wrong, true and false, good and evil, things which for the believer are not relative but established by God and so universally applicable. Later in this chapter, Jesus will tell his followers to look out for false prophets and that we will know them by their fruit. That is, we must evaluate their lives and their behaviour and teaching to see whether it's good or bad. In Matthew 18, Jesus speaks of the need to tell a sinning brother or sister their fault and that the church should exercise discipline over them when they'll not repent. Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 speaks of the need to avoid those who call themselves Christians but who continue in all kinds of sinful behaviours. The New Testament is continually calling for Jesus' people to distinguish between right and wrong, true and false, and to embrace and practice what is right and true and avoid what's false and wrong, calling on them to be discerning. So if this verse is not forbidding participation in the courts nor forbidding the practice of discernment, what is judge not lest ye be not judged forbidding? Well, it's forbidding what John Stock calls censoriousness. That is a critical, fault-finding attitude that condemns harshly, that's always looking to find fault, actively seeks out failings, is always putting the worst interpretation on someone's words and actions that lacks generosity in its treatment of others and their failings. Such an attitude is always destructive censoriousness does not speak out of love. Its goal is not to encourage, but to put someone down, to make them feel unworthy, to shame them. And yet, censorious people often take the high moral ground, don't they? I'm telling you this for your good. We have standards, and we just have to make sure that they're kept We want what's best for you. We want you to be the best you can be. And then, of course, the speaker lets them know how far they are, how far they are from being the best they can be, and how disappointed the speaker is with them that that's still the case, despite the speaker generously having pointed out their faults repeatedly. 
This judging, this censoriousness is actually an exercise of power over others to either mould them to the critic's vision of how they should behave or exclude them from the critic's company. An exercise of power that also helps to bolster the censorious person's sense of superiority and control. Now, you see that judging in the world and sometimes, sadly, in families, and you can see it amongst Jesus' followers, whether it's criticism of the way someone dresses or speaks or parents or of how they spend their time or their money or, say, whether they wear masks or not. But Jesus gives us a reason why we should not practice this judging. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. There is a judge who will judge us. Now while verse 2 could be read as saying the way you treat others will determine the way they treat you, and there's some truth in that, this verse is saying more. It is God who judges God, who has already said in his insistence that the forgiven must forgive, that he will judge his followers according to the way they treat others. What we want for others, what we choose to show others, well, that's what we are choosing for ourselves in his judgment. If we want the Lord to show us generous patience, a graciousness that picks up and restores, a love that acknowledges the heart's intention even where the outcome's not perfect, well, that's what we must show others in judgment. If we want to entrust our judgment to the Lord who knows all things, then we should not rush to judgment on partial truth and misrepresentations of motive. There is a judge. And we're not to put ourselves in his place, pretend that our brothers and sisters are accountable to us for their following of Jesus. As Paul says in Romans 14, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master he stands or falls. Our brothers and sisters like us are not perfect. There are things we can all grow in, that's true. But Jesus goes on to point out that While you think you're in a position to judge them, you are in no position to help them at all. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that's in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, this is a picture from the village carpenter's workshop. One person has a speck of sawdust in their eye, common enough when the wind blows through. But the other, well, it's a bit unusual. They've got a roof beam, slightly bigger than that bit of wood that you saw Clinton have in the picture. It's actually a roof beam. Now, try and visualise having a roof beam in your eye. Clinton kind of helped you, but... It's grotesque, isn't it, that someone could be so unaware of that beam that they could think they could help with the other speck. Now, it's plain, isn't it, that the person with the roof beam can only be of use to their fellow if they deal with their own problem first. Now, this is a picture that has both a general and particular application. 
It's always true that we find it much easier to see the faults of others than our own, and we should be aware of that. And it's always true that we have to deal with sin in our own life if we're going to be helpful to others. You know, get rid of that anger or that envy, our gossiping or lewd storytelling before what we say has credibility. (coughs) But Jesus' story has a particular application in the context of someone judging their brother or sister. He's thinking of a particular sin. You see, that judge has a really big sin problem, whatever is going on in the rest of their life, just from their judging. A really big sin problem, even if from the outside, he or she is without visible fault. Listen to James. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbour? See, James says that the one who judges their brother is putting themselves in the place of God by judging the law. And the law James has in mind is not so much the law that forbids slander, No, it's what he called in chapter 2 the royal law, the law of love, that we should love our neighbours as ourselves. You see, the censorious critic is saying that this law does not apply in their treatment of others. Putting yourself in the place of God, saying you know better than God how others should be treated, that your standards are more important than his and his demand that others be treated with love, the love that builds up and encourages. Now that is a really big log to have in your eye. And despite your conviction of your own capacity, your insight, your own right to point out the fault of others and bring them into line, while that sin is in your heart, you are good for nothing. You are, says our Lord, a hypocrite. Now that's a dreadful judgment on Jesus' lips. It says, you, the judge, are play-acting righteousness while being a rebel in your heart against the true God who is able to save and destroy a rebel by rejecting his rule, his law of love. And so if you're the critic, the priority's clear, isn't it? First, deal with your own sin, and in particular with the pride that puts itself in the place of God, where those whom God accepts on the basis of their faith in Jesus, you reckon you can condemn and exclude on the basis of your own rules. Where you reckon your being offended matters more than God being offended or your offending God. And if that's you, repent of that pride. Say God's the boss and embrace the humility that reckons yourself to be a sinner saved only by the generous and forgiving love of God in Christ. The humility that forgives those whom God forgives, that welcomes those whom God has welcomed because he has welcomed them. If you can do that, then you may be helpful. And it does help, doesn't it, to have those irritating specks taken out of our eyes. But you'll be doing it with a different motive. 
love, genuine love of the other and a different manner, humility, grace, patience. The humility, grace and patience of one who knows they themselves rely on God's grace and patience. Now Jesus finishes this section uh, with an enigmatic saying addressed to the group, to Jesus' followers collectively. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now on the one hand we can get the general point, can't we? What we should value, we should value what is holy and precious like pearls and not entrust what is precious to those like dogs and pigs who have no idea of its value and true to their nature will just treat it like a common and worthless thing and you with contempt. Where that happens, what's precious will be trashed and you'll be in danger because those dogs and pigs keep acting according to their nature. Now that much is clear, but there is debate about what specifically is being referred to as the holy and whether dogs and pigs have any specific reference. That is a debate about how to apply it. Many see it, after encouraging a generous spirit, as a reminder that there is still a need to exercise discernment, to recognise your generous sharing of the truth of the gospel may only provoke an evil response to recognise when we should move on. But I don't think that's actually the case. The context is speaking about the way we are treating each other, our brothers and sisters in the community of Jesus' followers. It's better to see Jesus here calling on us to reflect on the impact of censoriousness and hypocrisy. Where they go unchecked, the holy and precious, that is, Jesus' followers, those he calls his little ones in 1810, who are beloved of the Father, the holy and precious, are driven out into the world. And the world doesn't recognise how precious they are. They won't be valued or cared for there. And such hypocrisy will only provoke the world to further attacks on Jesus' people. Now, test all things, but that's what I think this passage is getting at. And it's true, isn't it? Constant criticism, harsh judgment, determined fault-finding by people in a Christian congregation who have demonstrable issues with their own obedience drive believers away, back into the world. And just as it was unthinkable for Jesus' first audience to give the holy to pariah dogs and pearls, very expensive luxuries to pigs, unthinkable. It ought to be unthinkable that we could let our congregation become a place that is unwelcoming to believers in Jesus, that we would drive them away by constant judging and harping fault-finding criticism. Now, this story about the log is challenging because it is hard to see our own faults. In fact, the whole sermon to this point has been challenging, hasn't it? I mean, to have that righteousness that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees in loving our enemies, keeping our word, reconciling, to live and practice our giving and prayers with God, the only audience, not being anxious but seeking his kingdom, it's all challenging particularly because knowing and doing are two different things. And Jesus wants doers 
Remember Matthew 28? We are to be taught to do, to keep all that Jesus has commanded. It's doers, Jesus reckons as disciples. Knowing the challenge, Jesus now gives a generous and definite assurance of help to his followers, the poor in spirit. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and everyone who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? This is assurance that our Father will not withhold any good thing from Jesus' followers. And it's a wonderful encouragement to draw near to seek the help we need to live as his followers. Now, some people uh, take these verses and suggest that this is a completely unqualified promise that anything we ask with enough faith, we will get. So they encourage us, in a sense, to name it and claim it, to think that faith is being able to enlist the almighty God's help for our own projects, for whatever we're pursuing and desiring. Now, that prayer is a kind of Aladdin's lamp, isn't it, for those who can rub it with enough faith. But they make that suggestion, and it's a suggestion that is both terrifying and untrue. It's terrifying, isn't it? Well, hopefully you think that, to think we are in charge. Alec Motch has written, If it were a case that whatever we ask God was pledged to give, then I, for one, would never pray again, because I would not have sufficient confidence in my own wisdom to ask God for anything. And I think if you consider it, you'll agree. We should agree, because we don't have the wisdom or knowledge to run the universe. Think of praying for rain, which some of us do from time to time. Now, not knowing the effect of the required weather pattern on your neighbours, let alone the continent, the chaos and disruption that could come from having your request automatically granted just because you'd asked, if that were the case, you would never ask for rain again, would you? Or for healing. Would you want everyone you prayed for to be automatically healed? When you don't know the impact of that on their own lives, whether they might go on to fall away from the faith or marry unwisely or commit a crime, and you don't know the impact of their healing on the lives of myriads of others, could you bear being responsible for all that? It's actually a terrifying suggestion. And thankfully, it's also untrue. There's nothing mechanical in this promise. No Aladdin's lamp in ask, seek, knock. Our Lord is encouraging us to draw near to our good Father. And that relationship qualifies this promise, for he remains our almighty Father, sovereign, all-wise, all-knowing, in charge. What we're assured of is that he will hear us and give us good things. More, that just like a child, we can come to him over and over and over again for the same needs and he won't tire of our requests. We don't have to get everything right. I mean, 
What father withholds good because the exact right words have not been used? And this is a how much more. How much better is God our Father? How much more willing to generously respond to our requests for good? And while the promise is framed generally, the context actually informs our understanding of the good things we ask for. I mean, Jesus in chapter 6 has already assured his followers that they can pray for their daily needs, their material needs, that their Father knows them and will provide them. So the good things here, coming at the end of Jesus' sermon, his direction about how we're to live, while not excluding daily needs, are actually more focused on seeking God's help to live his way. Now, we have examples of that in Scripture. We are, it is, for example, hard to see our own faults. But listen to the psalmist pray. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's a request for good that God our Father will give us to reveal our sin to us. Oh, it's hard to love. So the Apostle Paul prays for the Philippians that their love may abound more and more with knowledge and depth of insight. Oh, that's a good that our Heavenly Father delights to give us. In fact, where these promises are spoken in Luke, Jesus ends the section by sharpening the focus on the good our Father will give us. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You see, this is a great promise, ask, seek, knock, of grace to the poor in spirit. Those who know they must depend on God can only look to God for help to live God's way. The disciple, you see, starts by knowing her or his need. And here we are assured at the end of Jesus making plain the life he looks for from his followers, here we are assured of grace to live as God's child, to live as a citizen of Christ's kingdom, of strength to practice that righteousness that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, assured that our Father will generously give us all we need. And so we should be praying confidently and constantly for that help. And this clear promise counters the fear that we won't be answered or our Father will run out of patience when we come again asking for strength to obey. He will always give us good things. And this promise makes his help so that makes his help so freely available also challenges the pride that thinks we can live as Christ's disciple in our own strength without asking. Oh, and this promise challenges the faithlessness that never really commits, that never starts to live as Jesus' follower for fear of failure, that says Jesus' way is just too hard or unreal. No, Jesus makes us a good promise and we are assured of help. So here is the strong encouragement we need to seek good things 
from our Father. Everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be open. And so if you're a believer in Jesus, are you asking, seeking, knocking for those good things, confident in your heavenly Father? Are you asking, seeking, knocking? Well, having assured us of the help the Lord Jesus comes now to conclude his teaching that started at 5.17 on the life that fulfills the law and the prophets. Uh, Jesus has covered much since 5.20, but there are many situations, as I said before, that he hasn't addressed directly. What will guide his people as they face these, as they say engage with social media, deal with the complexities of family life, navigate relationships in modern workplaces? So he concludes, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Here is the summary guide for all our behaviour towards all others in all circumstances, the guide and the great demand of discipleship. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. But notice first what this is not saying. It's not whatever others have done to you, do to them. Now that's the way some people live, but it actually enslaves you to the way others treat you. And it's not whatever others wish you should do for them, do for them. That's the way someone to interpret the command to love our neighbour so that we always are to follow our neighbour's expressed desire. If they want acceptance for their sexual immorality, well, they say to love your neighbour is to show them that acceptance. But that's actually to enslave you to their desires and wishes. What Jesus does say is, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also for them. And for this to be a safe guide, you have to remember the you Jesus is addressing. Jesus is speaking to his followers, those who've embraced the repentance of saying Jesus is king, the boss of their lives, who are to hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are committed to being children of their heavenly father, perfect as their father is perfect. He's speaking to disciples. And the disciple of Jesus could never wish that people could help them accept their sinning or help them in their sinning. Now, what a disciple wishes is that others help them live God's way. And this is more than don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. Now, that's a start and it embraces a lot of the Ten Commandments. But this is a positive command. Do to others what you wish others would do to you. And that extends the range of our obligation. It's much more open-ended. You see, it's not enough to not harm. We are to do good. It's not enough, say, to not pilfer from the wounded man on the Jericho Road. You know, like the Samaritan, we actually have to stop. We've got to interrupt the progress of our lives and attend to his wounds care and provide for his care, expend our resources. It's a positive 
command. And this command fulfills the law and the prophets in relation to how they tell you to treat others. The law summarised elsewhere as you will love your neighbour as yourself. And living this way, conforming your treatment of others to this command, embodies and expresses the freedom of the children of God. You see, even as it obligates you to all, and it does, makes you a servant of all to seek their good, it actually frees you to live as God's child. You see, how you live isn't any longer determined by how others have treated you, nor by their wishes and desires. It's now determined by the good that you as a child of God would want. This is behaviour that flows from your relationship with your father. So how do we put it into practice? Well, two things are essential, aren't they? First of all, you have to be godly. You have to cultivate a heart that wants what Jesus wants for you. And secondly, you have to be willing to engage with the circumstances of others. We have to put ourselves in their shoes and ask how in their circumstances we would want to be treated in word and deed. And that means if we can't do that, if our range of experience is limited or we can't imagine what it would be like to be in their circumstances, we have to ask to talk to them and to listen so that we can understand their circumstances. But to see where this command might take us, let's think through some examples, some simple ones and maybe some more complex ones. For example... Take making appointments. How do you want to be treated when you have made an appointment for someone to meet you? Well, you want them to be on time. So doing to others will make you a punctual person. That's love. But how do you want to be treated when you are running late for that appointment? Say the traffic's heavy or you're just so busy it's hard to get out the door. Well, actually, you want grace and understanding, not rejection and anger. So... Love will be punctual, but gracious to those who aren't. Another, how do you want to be treated when you have a boring job at the end of the day? You know, you're left with the washing up or cleaning the church. Do you want to be left on your own or have someone offer to help? Oh, love is aware and offers. But how do you want to be treated when you have to get away? You've got another appointment. Well, you want to be treated graciously and not resented as you leave. So doing to others will not grumble about having to pick up the slack from time to time. Now, these are easy examples because they're close to our experience, but there are more difficult situations always that we actually need to think about. How would you want to be treated if you were a same-sex attracted person coming into our church? Talked about, regarded with suspicion, made to feel uncomfortable? Or would you want to find someone to talk to about your struggles to live faithful to Jesus, to be encouraged and welcomed? How would you want to be treated if you were someone with a demanding child and you were doing everything you knew of to bring them up well but still they didn't always behave as they should? Want to be avoided or encouraged and comforted? Do you want to be shunned and looked at askance? or perhaps even invited round to someone's house for a change. Sometimes we have to stop and think. You know, circumstances we aren't familiar with. How would I want to be treated if one of my family members was seriously and chronically ill? 
Oh, how would I want to be treated if I was somebody stuck in visa limbo or could only get a temporary protection visa? How would I want to be treated if life had been so hard I was begging on the street? You need to think those through, don't you? In regard to the latter, for whatever reason I was there, I don't think I'd want to meet disapproval or neglect, but kindness and help, however small. In all our circumstances, in all our dealings with others, whatever you wish others, whatever you wish uh, that others would do to you, we are to do for them. It's such a good guide, isn't it? But what might make it hard to consistently practice what Jesus commands? And he does expect us to do it every day with everyone. What might make it hard? Busyness. Just not taking the time to think about what I want people to do for me in that circumstance. Indifference. Being so preoccupied with my own plans that I don't even notice others. Pride. I could never imagine myself in that situation. Never say there, but for the grace of God go I. Ignorance. Lack of experience without the humility to ask. Oh, perhaps even an unwillingness to see that person as a genuine other person, someone like me, made in God's image. Oh, and then, to be honest, we're not just rational beings. Our emotions get in the way too, don't they? Anger. At them being in that situation or interrupting our plans or fear, anxiety. You know, just not certain about what we should do or what it will take. Now, all of those flow from a lack of trust in our sovereign God who rules all things, who can always keep us and who has put that person in our lives for a good purpose, his good purpose. But it's worth reflecting on what stops us from doing unto some what we would have others do for us because for whatever the reason, this is still Jesus' command. And thinking about why we might find it hard to practice this consistently reminds us that this obedience flows from faith and the humility of being saved by grace. The humility that recognises our own need for help and is so grateful for the love of God that provided his son to save us that it is glad to love others in return. And the faith in our Father that tells us we don't need to be anxious about the demand on our time and resources because we know and trust that where we seek God's kingdom and righteousness, he'll provide for us all we need. Oh, and the faith that says, where we ask, our Father will give us good things, the wisdom and courage, the patience and kindness. We need to love another. Well, our Lord Jesus calls us to be and teaches us to be a different people together. Obedience to him is to be expressed in all of life, in all our dealings with others in every part of our lives. And it's to be expressed throughout our lives. There never is a time, for example, when we do not have to do to others what we would want them to do for us. It's not an obedience you grow out of. You see, Jesus is calling each one of us to the long obedience 
in the one direction, the direction of following him. But it is a journey undertaken one day at a time and a journey undertaken together. It's as we listen to him that together we will be salt and light, do good to our community and bring honour to our God. But remember, Jesus is not looking for you to agree with or approve his teaching. Not looking for you to sit back and say, that's a great ethic, Jesus, I'm, I'm right there with you, right? No, no, Jesus is looking for obedience. He's looking for the obedience of faith. So let's help each other to stay on the journey of following Jesus by being a community that is serious about doing Jesus' will, about living righteously, but expresses that not in criticism and fault-finding, but in encouraging each other, in reckoning every believer, every brother and sister so precious, someone for whom our Lord has died. Oh, and let's be that community by being poor in spirit. Those who have no confidence in their own goodness but know their need and so constantly ask and seek and knock for the good things, for the spirit-empowered life of godliness that our Father will generously give us and ask not for ourselves alone but asks for each other because together, together, We want to be that salt and light. We want to honour our loving Saviour. Bring him honour in the world by being people who can be relied on to love our neighbours as ourselves. Uh, Let's ask. Let's pray. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we do pray that we would be doers and not hearers only. We pray that we would repent of thinking that we are the judges who can hold people accountable to us for their behaviour and who forget that you are the judge and you have commanded us to love others. And, Father, we pray that we would so trust your kindness to us in our Lord Jesus and in your determination to give us good, the good of a life of being your children, that we would ask and seek and knock constantly and be strengthened by you to live lives that fulfil your good law and prophets. In Jesus' name, amen.